Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. pretty bad it's been a bad summer for movies i think in some ways what hasn't been terrible though was green knight i think we should open talking about green knight and maybe a comparison of the movie nine days both very different movies but i think these were two highlights of the summer for us yeah and i feel like both of them are good examples of what Slayhouse is looking for in stories and books like what they did with the movies are good examples because both are genre movies but both don't feel like genre movies. They don't have the core staples. So um, do you want to start with Green Knight? Yeah, sure. Green Knight, uh, directed by David Lowery, written by David Lowery. Starring David Lowery? No, no he wasn't. No, 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 he wasn't. No, he no wasn't. That, he's not in Night Shyamalan. There Shamalan. are a lot of those movies, though, Yeah, where we've seen, like, directed by, written by, produced by. He's not, yeah, he's not, he's not in Night Shyamalan. No. Er, or Lisa Joy, and I think I forgot to put that that Lisa that Joy reminiscences, reminiscences on our on our list. So she I don't was know. The we accent might... coach for that movie too. She was the choreographer for the swim scenes. <laughs> she was. We did this joke already on old on the old episode. We can't really do it again, although it lends itself really like, well. Can't we though? Lisa Joy's pretty bad. So right. who starred in the Green Knight? Dev Patel. Was... I want to see a movie starring Dev Patel and Dave Chappelle. I just think that would be a fun movie to see. I think that would be fun. <laughs> I'm sure they would enjoy making that it's movie. It's like a buddy cop movie starring Dev Patel and Dave Chappelle. And people just have shit ton of fun saying the two names together. I would watch it for sure. All Dev right, Patel, he's actually <laughs> been breaking out in a lot of stuff. Uh, I feel like this is one of his best performances so far. Uh, he brings just a lot of I don't, it just like human vulnerability to Sir Gawain, who I think traditionally has been you know, kind of like this paragon of, of chivalry. So to see a more vulnerable Sir Gawain in this movie was a lot of fun. Um, it's also got Alicia Vikander. I think that's how you say her name, maybe. I don't know. I was going to go with Vikander, but I Vikander. think between the two of us, we've sure. got it covered. Or some people can mention, mix and match, too. Maybe it's Vikander. We should really maybe research this before we talk about it. I don't know. I think that's part of the fun. Yeah. Joel Edgerton is also in this movie. Um, he plays uh, a role that I thought was kind of interesting. This Lord of uh, Manor, I guess, that's kind of one of the, the tests of uh, Sir Gawain's fortitude. Um, it's got a couple of other kind of smaller stars, I think. I've seen the guy who played the Green Knight in a couple of different movies. Um, same with King Arthur. I, I forget the, the guy's name that played King Arthur, but he was in one of the latest Mission Impossible movies. And Skeletor um, played his wife. And Skeletor played his wife. Skeletor, she scared the shit out of me. She was also a really scary queen in uh, the Game of Thrones series. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I remember you telling me that. Yeah. I've not seen Game of Thrones yet. That's one of the ones I haven't seen. Don't, don't see it. Don't, I mean, I mean, the, I've not even read the books. The first couple of seasons are pretty great, but then those later seasons are just, what are you doing? Yeah, it's, yeah, can... it's pretty bad. But what isn't bad is Green Knight. Uh, had a budget of $15 million and a box office of 18.1. So it didn't lose its shirt in the deal, but certainly didn't make a, as huge a splash as I'm sure they wanted it to yeah. make. Uh, which is really disappointing because it is a phenomenal movie. Beautifully, beautifully shot. Beautifully shot, beautifully acted. I feel like the direction was really 
awesome. And what worked so well for the story, I think, for me, was the way in which it was all kind of thematically bound by this exploration of what use chivalry is to a world of human vice or human vices. It, it's really, it digs into, I think, the original mythology, which was all about kind of like the moral decay of the Arthurian court. Because that was kind of the whole point of the Green Knight, right? Yeah. What's the story of, of the Green Knight as you remember it? So the Green Knight, um, Gawain is in, in King Arthur's court. I think you and I researched it, and I think we did read that he is King Arthur's nephew. Um, that's who he is in the, in yeah. the movie, too. And they're having a celebration in Christmas when the Green Knight strolls in and he says, any man, um, I, I forget how he lays the challenge down to them, but he's like, any man who can chop off my head, I want to see who's, who's capable of doing this. And then they have to come and, and meet me next year at this time. He actually, it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay. He yeah, basically yeah. says, anyone who would like to take up my challenge, make lay upon me a blow and after that is done i will return a like blow to them one year hence so the the idea of course is is kind of and no this testimony. isn't an early lgbtq movie this or story <laughs> this is from like the middle ages they're not talking about that kind of blow they're talking about swords which is still kind of phallic so maybe i don't know but I'd anyway go ahead lean into it why sure. not why not sure <laughs> Let's make it weird. Um, no, so Sir Gawain kind of Anybody wants up... to give me a blow, I'll give him a similar blow later. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely just lost Rudy Giuliani, by the way. That's well, going to be a recurring joke. I'm just throwing yeah. that out there. I mean, I, I know he was in that Borat sequel when he really wanted a blow. <laughs> <laughs> blow for blow. Uh, right, so we the, have a theme running through this this episode. <laughs> Alien it's all about blowjobs. All about blowjobs. We're gonna turn every movie we talk about into a blowjob. Oh, no. Just wait till we get to Don't Breathe. <laughs> That's gonna be so rude. <laughs> Go ahead, keep oh, going no. with the story. I don't like it. <laughs> all right, the night house takes on a new meaning entirely. <laughs> all right, so anyway. Uh, Sir Gawain says, uh, yeah, I'll take up this challenge. That's fine. And he uh, goes up and, and beheads the Green Knight, right? And uh, and that's supposed to kind of be the finish, right? Because, like, who can come back from that unless you're a sorceress, weird, like, fay creature or whatever, right? Well, this thing looks like a tree anyway. It's it does. Like, In the movie, it looks like a tree. Groot's ancestor, I think. Yeah. I think it, it's supposed to kind of look like that in the book, too. See, we should have reread the book. We should have reread the book, and we should have watched that Sword in the Valiant with Sean Connery playing uh, the Green yeah. Knight, we may where have he was literally just painted green. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So... Uh, wasn't Sean Connery also in another Arthur? We story? thought so, but I looked it up. It was um whatever that Excalibur movie was around the same time, but he wasn't in that. I looked on IMDb. Oh, okay. Yeah, <clears throat> the John Borman Excalibur yeah. movie. Yeah. Right. Okay. But he played King Arthur in the first night. Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, in first, first night. night. First night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's true. No, King Arthur was played by our friend Patrick Stewart in uh 
Men in Tights. Yeah, Robin Men in Tights. But tights. what about the original Robin Hood? With or not the original, but the the shitty one with Kevin Costner. I don't even remember that. I mean, I know Alan Rickman was in there. Yeah. Making jokes about cutting your heart out with a spoon. Yeah, and I I I feel like the reason for the jokes for Robin Hood Men in Tights, like the the appearance of Patrick Stewart at mm-hmm. the end was spoofing the appearance and I think it was King Arthur at the end of that. Oh, playing King maybe. John. It could it would, be. It wouldn't have been King Arthur, it would have been King John. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I'm Oh wrong. yeah, King John. I'm sorry. Yeah. I am the only Robin Hood that speaks with an English accent. <laughs> That's from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, so, so the Green Knight gets beheaded. Well, man, it is so hard to tell a story when you don't have like this summary straight in front of you. I feel like we just go on tangents. I mean, all I the typed time. up a whole script. I forgot the summary, but but you're right. It's yeah. all good. So he cuts <laughs> off his head, and then uh, the Green Knight picks up his head and says, "All right, cool, thanks, bro. I'll see you in a year." And now, Sir Gawain has to embark on a journey to go meet this green knight and receive the blow in kind right uh, which means he's he's going to get his head cut cut off good off. clarification there good clarification yeah got, right and the top the <laughs> it's top not head, a kind not, blow it's not, not the bottom head this isn't a happy ending oh man <laughs> we're <laughs> we're definitely gonna have to add that explicit tag on this episode i think all of our episodes need explicit tags <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so Dev Patel as Sir Gawain then embarks on this journey. He runs into a bunch of different uh, people along the way where his metal is tested, and and really his his uh, chivalric spirit is tested until finally he meets with with the Green Knight and has to kind of face the the culmination of his decisions in life. Uh, so what works about this movie? So it has a beautiful sequence at the end that really kind of... Actually, it has a lot of beautiful sequences throughout the whole story. Um, the scene with the young lady that recently starred in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series is one of the, the villains. Yeah, yeah. Um, her scene in The Green Knight with, with Dev Patel, where she's this ghost who's been murdered, is beautifully shot. It's wonderfully rendered. Mm-hmm. One of the shots that sticks out to me that talks about how it does something really well, but it also speaks to one of the few weaknesses of the movie is the ending scene when the Green Knight's about, and this isn't a spoiler because I'm not going to talk about what actually happens. I mean, can we actually spoil like a 14th century poem? We've already spoiled a 73-year-old story. Yeah. So we might as well spoil, spoil this too. But the Green Knight's about to cut his head off and Death Patel's Gawain has this moment of cowardness and he... um. He runs away and he's like, no, 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 give me a second, give me a second. And then the Green Knight tries again. Are you ready? He goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes to swing again. He's like, no, 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 give me another second, give me another second. And he ends up running away. And it's this musically very limited um, sound uh, or dialogue kind of saying mm-hmm. where he, it's going through life with him. He sees Arthur die. He sees he, the woman he's in love with at the beginning of the film. She gives birth to a child, but now he's king, so he can't have a relationship with her. So he's forced to marry for convenience, but he takes the child as his own anyway. Mm-hmm. He grows up. The kingdom is starting to fall apart. And I think at this point, we leaned over, like I leaned over to you or you leaned over to me. And we like, we're like, this is a dream sequence. Yeah. And sure enough, it was because it flashes back and he's back there. And he's almost like watched his entire life flash before him. Like if he runs away at this point, how his life is going to turn out. And at that point, he makes the decision not to run away. Now, I won't spoil what happens at the end partly because I'm not sure, but 
I know within the story, the 14th century story, he doesn't actually get his head cut off. No. The knights, he, he just it's all gets about nicked. The, right? Yeah, he gets nicked. cut. The knight tests his metal and he sends him on his way back home. Right. At having taught him a very mm-hmm. important lesson about right. the importance of chivalry. Right? What I struggle with with this movie is there's some exposition, and I hate movies with way too much exposition, yeah, yeah. but this movie doesn't have quite a bit enough exposition to help fill in a few of those gaps it really throws you into the story and just says go yeah like i had to kind of piece together who some of the characters were even like after the movie was over and and i only did that kind of by looking through a lot of what david lowry said in interviews or wrote about the movie uh because apparently the movie had a completely different cut and and because of the pandemic lowry just decided to recut the movie entirely and yeah. as a result, we we end up with what I think is a much stronger film than what he kind of says the original cut would have been. Because it, it, the, the ambiguity of the ending, I think, really works in its favor pretty well. I think the ambiguity, once we figured it out, kind of works. There's still some things in there where I wish there could have been a little bit more exposition. Man, I don't know the what giants? the giants were doing what in the there. What the fuck was that about? I have no idea what the giants were. Everything else about Creepy, the movie weird, works Creepy, weird, pale, really... blue, giant. Yeah, it it works really well thematically. I think everything else in the movie, you know, every episode he comes into, there's like a purpose to that episode to to show you the flaws in this guy's character and the ways in which he has to grow by the end of the movie. And, And that I think he does. I think he, as a character, matures immensely by the end of the movie because he makes yeah. the, the decision, the final decision that I think is the most impactful, which is to stay and see the, the consequences of his actions through to conclusion. Right. Um, I will say that even though I'm disappointed in the amount of exposition that could have been in there, just a little bit more to help explain things, I wasn't turned off by the movie because of that. Right. So I still think it's a really great movie. I think people should really, really go see it. Yeah. Um, just like, oh, go ahead. No, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that similarly, they should go see Nine Days, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nine Days. Beautiful film. Trevor, let me ask you something. Yeah. You have a kid. Sure. No. You're in a concentration sure. camp. Oh. The guard sees the kid steal something and says, are you getting, he said, I can either kill your kid or I can kill everybody else here. What do you do? What do you do? I'm going to yell at you for no unnecessary reason right now and ask you, what do you do? I mean, this is actual me dialogue pers- from this is actually this is from the movie. Yeah, but it's a really important thought experiment experiment because you what know, do you do? Like, how do you make a what decision? Do do? I mean, my decision, do? of course, is to do nothing because do do? if if he kills my kid or he kills everybody, that's on him. That's his sin. It's not my sin. I don't need to make a decision about what some maniac is going to do because I mean, what's what's the end result? Like, I bear no guilt over what I can't control. Ah, interesting. You get a big X. Yeah, right. Yeah, all I right. would never make it as a human being. Right? So, yeah, neither would I. So, all of this being said, um, this is all from nine days. I bet you think we're going to paint it because we usually pair up a good story with a bad story. But in this case, I think we both really like this movie. I, I, I saw it twice. You saw it twice? Oh, saw, yeah, you did because yeah, you I went did. to see it. And I went to you see and it went. and then I said, dude, we, we, we cannot go... We can't let this go out of theaters without seeing it. And uh, it's spectacular. Directed by Edson Oda, written by Edson Oda, starring Winston Duke, who is uh, the guy from 
Black Panther, the big gorilla guy. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Zay Z beats Benedict Wong, who people will know as uh, Wong from Wong from, <laughs> from Marvel's. It's a real stretch on that Doctor character Strange. name, wouldn't it? Right. right yeah. <laughs> Benedict Wong, uh, Tony Hale from like everything, but definitely yeah. Arrested Development. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then Bill Skarsgård. Pennywise. Pennywise the Clown. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a really interesting cast um, that they've put together, and, and they I work think, well together. Oh they, they have great chemistry. All they of them. all of them just deliver such great character work in this the scenes that they've got. So this is a really cool genre flick because Winston Duke is a character who was once alive, who is now charged with finding the right soul to be born and to go into a body. So he, these, these beings, these people come in, Zazie Beats and Tony Hale and Bill Skarsgård and others, they come in and he basically tests them over the course of nine days to see if they're worthy of getting a soul. And Benedict Wong plays a character that supervises him and he's his friend, mm-hmm. but he doesn't, um, he's never been born. So this is a weird like afterlife, pre-life kind of crossroads. The setting is very, very bleak. Um, very Almost bleak. minimalist. Almost minimalist. Had a $10 million budget. Unfortunately, it only made $810,836 yeah, like at the box office. I feel like that's a, a real mistake of how this movie was marketed. Because yeah. I, I, I didn't <clears throat> even know that it existed until I just tripped across... Uh, a preview in one of the movies that I went to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it it's difficult to kind of put together the weird vibe that this movie gives cuz it it's so strange and and it very anachronistic in a lot of ways, but it works in this movie's favor because by I think by kind of divorcing us a little bit from the immediate immersion into the film by causing us to question like what's going on. It, it's another movie that does not give us a whole ton of exposition. It gives us just enough so that we understand the stakes of what's going on. Or the but I premise. feel like too, it gives us enough exposition in the right places in the right places that we know. Right. And that's where I feel like the green Knight kind of faltered. Right. A bit. So whereas it, it disorients at the very beginning, I think it, it fills in the gaps eventually so that, you know, hopefully you're, you're really invested in the story and the, the characters that are developing. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful contemplation, I think, on, on life and, and life's troubles, but also the kind of surreptitious beauty, the sublime beauty of life and, and experience. It has a final act, or a really not even a final act, is it's more like the final scene of the film where they dig up um, poetry from uh, uh, oh, shoot, Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It, it Like the most beautifully delivered Walt Whitman I've ever heard. I was in tears. I'm going to pair it right up there with um Dead, Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams. Oh. His delivery of some of the poetic lines and including Walt Whitman in there. Yeah. That 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 was that was beautiful. I, I bet I tie them. I think Winston Duke did just as good a job. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. I, but I think adored it. And what I love about this movie is that there's two conflicts really, right? Mm-hmm. There's the exterior conflict of which soul is gonna get it. And so really right. this comes down to Zazy Beats and Bill Skarsgård's characters. And they're both 
very, very strong contenders for this this life. Right. But also but the, very different. Very, very different. Like, um, and, and I don't I don't want to get into necessarily how they're different because I think that's the fun of the movie. Yeah. But I'm I'm really interested in this other conflict, which is with Winston Duke and it's internal. Yeah. Because he promoted this woman that he thought would be totally perfect for this life, and he learns over the course of the film that she's killed herself, that she's committed suicide. Right. And he's destroyed by this. Yeah. And this is affecting his decision now that he has to make with these new characters. Right. And I think they just, they both conflicts go so well together as they the movie do. progresses. It really didn't feel like an over two hour long movie to me. No, it, was it, it over two hours? I think it's like two plus hours. I think it's like, I, I feel like it was. Like, wow. I, I did not feel that way at all. Yeah. I, yeah. I was, I mean, it, it hooked me from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, with the the violin solo that they play, and I was I mean I was in tears several times through the first my first viewing of the movie. When I went to see it a second time, uh, the the kind of middle sequence where it really tries to get some tears out of you mm -hmm. didn't work on me quite as effectively because I was then aware of what it was doing. But that final scene with Winston Duke and Walt Whitman, mm -hmm. it, it it just drives me to tears every time I think about it. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. And one of the things that at, like like I got into literature and kind of like cultural studies just on the strength of some of those feelings that I had over poetry and over mm -hmm. literature and um, and to see this rendition of Walt Whitman, I think was just like, and this is why I do literature. You know, it's just <laughs> so powerful. It was such a beautiful movie. And to carry on our double entendres for single entendre, he does offer, he's one of the few, whatever these beings are called that, that judges these souls or the, the, the veracity of these souls or whatever. Mm -hmm. He is one of the only that offers the rejected right. a chance at a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He gives them a happy ending. He's like, think about a moment that you've witnessed that you want to experience. And I'll recreate that for you as best I can. Yeah. So, it's a really um, wonderful movie. It was a wonderful, wonderful movie. Yeah. So then Trevor and I both decided we needed to go see Don't Breathe 2. Man. Well, we decided we had to go see Don't Breathe 2. So, like so you all would, wouldn't have to. You go from the highest of the highs to like the lowest of the lows. But before, because neither one of us had seen Don't Breathe, the original. So we rented that on Amazon Prime. And I well, think we spent way too much money on that. Worst four bucks I have ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should talk about Don't Breathe and Don't Breathe Too. Yeah, don't. Wasn't that a No Doubt song? Oh, wait, that was Don't Speak. I really am. Maybe, well, they really shouldn't have speak in there. If you guys think my accents or my dialect is a little weird today because of my, my allergy issues, let me tell you, Stephen Lang puts on his worst. What is Stephen Lang doing? I think he wants to be Bane from Dark Knight Rises. It doesn't. It's so weird. But he's like talking like this, and his accent changes every time. Jeremy, like, it's Trevor. I've forgotten my laundry. How do you see to turn the dials? I'm. How do I seem to turn the dial? No, he does. Oh, he does. He's blind. Is he like this? I don't, the you know, I don't or... understand anything about this movie. And he's got a VCR and he's just <laughs> playing the VHS over and over and over. He's got a woman trapped in his basement with like this weird. This is the first one. folks. This is the first one. And, and don't breathe. 
Most of you might have seen it because it had a nine million nine or nine point nine million dollar budget and one hundred fifty seven point eight million dollar gross. Four dollars of which is yours. I, I'm sorry <laughs> to the world for those four dollars. <laughs> I spent four dollars on this movie. The only other movie that had worse accents than this was Reminiscence. Man, the, the accent Lisa Joy as accent coach. Someone should fire her. I don't that, that she didn't she wasn't the actual accent coach, but she should have known better. Yeah. I don't even know what the accents were in that movie. I don't I don't know. It was the weirdest like Chicago gangster in Miami. It was This bizarre. is reminiscence, folks. Not don't breathe and not don't, don't breathe. breathe. Too. Don't breathe. Just sounds like this. Stephen Lang. Like he's not breathing. He's Bane that can't breathe. I'm upset that they didn't name Don't Breathe to Continue Not Breathing. Yeah. Start CPR. Please, please breathe. Yeah. <laughs> start CPR. Please don't breathe. breathe. You're not, you should, start you CPR. should have taken a breath by now. Start resuscitation. Gosh, what a terrible movie. No, he's got. So I'm really confused about this blind man, right? Because he's like he he has a v, VHS tape of his daughter or yeah. whatever that he just plays on repeat. He's got a VCR and it's playing constantly. He has a woman in the basement that he's like tied up with this weird BDSM leather suspension cable it's like when daredevil got older he just got dementia and yeah, went crazy no he's doing like this it's weird it is this it, i guess this is like what if what if daredevil were a rapist that's the movie and fede, serial killer fede alvarez the the director and writer of this he's first responsible movie, for both of them he was just like you know what if what if daredevil was a rapist and and now we have this terrible movie where stephen lang is doing an accent i truly don't understand yeah. but but i'm also just like how how did he construct this weird harness thing? Like, did he have someone come in and install it? And the guy who installed it was just like, I know what you're doing, buddy. Yeah, I bet you don't. You probably killed him afterward. I probably did. I don't know. It's, <laughs> and that's another thing. He's got like this weird survival chamber in his basement too, with like a bunch of supplies. And I'm like, how does, I, I'm not trying to be, like anti-blind people but i'm like how does he do any of this alone like uh, completely unassisted i i like how did he how did build he that? even like it's no spoiler now but how did he even impregnate the woman how does there? he's got i did uh, he just ask her to play marco polo i don't know he, <laughs> the turkey baster <laughs> marco polo you know <laughs> That was another thing. He was he was like, I'm not a rapist. But then like, but bro, like, do you just not know the definition of rape? Because there are different kinds of rape for sure. Golly, it was just such a, it was so terrible. It was such a bad movie. Well, Don't Breathe 2 only made, only cost 15 million. So they didn't increase the budget that much, but it only made 42.2 million. Yeah. So. If I was confused about the plot of Don't Breathe 1, I was even more confused about Don't Breathe 2. Because in Don't Breathe 1, they're like, here's Stephen Lang. He's this blind monster, which is already kind of, I'm kind of like, that's kind of mean. Like Stephen Lang, by the way, folks, is credited as being twenty year a 20-year horror veteran. He's famous for Avatar, and that's about it. Yeah, and Don't Breathe. And I Don't mean, Breathe. And he had some, like, bit parts in some other movies. And, yeah. but, but one article we read about him said he was a 20-year horror veteran. A 20-year horror, horror vet, veteran. I know Avatar doesn't stand in, like, up. five movies. And, like, it, like it did when it first came out. But do we really call it a horror film? 
like no it's not it's, it's horrible it's definitely not but it's not but, but i'm confused because it like this blind guy let's use our genitals to connect to horses so we can fly um, around with them that's uh, and james cameron's coming out with six more of those too so you know as long as it's taken to make them that's just gonna be shit <laughs> stephen lang's just raping jen jane levy in the meantime like that this is side gig yeah yeah, yeah. um no, so I, I'm so confused about the blind guy and like, how does he manage any of his affairs in this movie? But then, don't breathe too. After after firmly establishing, like this guy's terrible, right? Like he's a murderer, he's a rapist. They turn him into the hero of the second movie, and and here's I'm scratching my head because I'm like, how do you how do you take a character that evil and make him into a hero? What would you do as a writer, Jeremy, if you were like, I have gone off the deep end to make this guy a total monster how do i redeem him what do you do so there is a level of of hierarchy of virtue to villainous right it consists of about nine levels and the school of thought is that when you're taking a character from really virtuous to really villainous you don't have to hit every level you can just kind of skip down but if you're going to take that character and make them very villainous to start and then try and make them a hero, then you have to gradually work your way up. We have to see them change. So in the gradation of like villainous and trying to get back up to virtuous, like what's the worst thing that you could do as a villain? I'm just... Uh... So it's nine stages and there's, so there's three virtue, there's, and I'm going off a of memory on this folks, so please, I, I don't have it in front of me. I didn't think to print this off and bring it and I should have, but there's three virtuous, there's three kind of gray, kind of morally gray care, uh, uh, sections, and then there's three stages of pure villainy. With the third, with the ninth stage, the third and final stage, being completely villainous, like there's no redemption whatsoever. And so it's very hard to take a character from that stage and move them up at all. Sure. Usually the character has to be like eight or seven. Seven is a villainous character who is really almost morally gray. They're, they're a character who's making some questionable choices and they're okay with those questionable choices, but they're still doing it for a little bit better reason than, than just being totally out and out evil. With nine, there's no redemption and eight is somewhere kind of in between that. So I would probably set him at an eight, but because they decided to make him a serial rapist and a serial killer in the first film. And let's not forget his greatest sin, which is that accent. Yeah, his acting. Um, that that puts him to me at a nine, like at a nine going, an eight going into a nine, and that's very hard to redeem. Yeah. So uh, of course, I think that the writers of this this uh, sequel, which is Fede Alvarez and and Rodos Sayagues, Sayagues. Yes. Yeah. Um, they decide that like well the only real threshold that we haven't crossed here with this guy is animal cruelty. And as a result, I'm sorry, I just got freaked out by the lamp, which fell over here. That happened last time too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, animal cruelty is like the one thing he doesn't do. And so in this movie, they're like, well, we got to redeem him. How do we do it? Let's make him save a dog. And the guy that he's fighting would kill the dog and now you're like oh man i'm totally on stephen lang's side the the plot is also bizarre in don't sounds like too. they just watch too much like john wick oh it's it's awful 
in in yeah yeah the the action sequences make again he's just daredevil with with so like, who is the bad guy in this film because i didn't disorders. go see it the bad guy in this film is this weird drug dealer uh where it's set in detroit right yeah and i i, I want to wrap your head or around this plot because it's insane you're telling me they made two movies of moral decay and crime set in detroit go That's hard figure. to figure go figure so this drug dealer wants to get his child back because at, at the very beginning of the movie stephen lang kidnaps a child from a meth house fire and the dad goes to prison for that fire because of course he's a meth dealer and had a meth lab in his basement so he goes to prison he comes back out of prison finds out that his wife or partner or whatever is dying from the meth house fire from ingesting or like inhaling too many of the chemicals in that meth house fire so hear me out how long was his prison sentence i don't like it was like eight years or something and it took her eight years to it die it took her eight years to die of meth so he's he's like all right i my wife is dying and i i gotta help that because she's my meth cook and if i don't have a meth cook i don't have a meth business and my meth business is really all i am because there's a shortage of meth cooks out there because there's a shortage of meth cooks in detroit so he's like all right well in order to get you could just her, come down to arkansas and get a couple of meth cooks or like or detroit right <laughs> So he's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get my, I gotta save my wife. And he figures out that the, the only way to do that is to find like a genetic match for her organs. And he knows that they had a kid. He believed that the kid was dead though, because she's supposed to have died in this fire. So he's just trolling around Detroit, like in hopes of kidnapping a, a young girl who happens to be his daughter. And then in order to take her organs and put her organs into her or his <laughs> wife, right? He has to have someone who can do that. So he hires like a serial murderer, like a serial killer in Detroit who's been cutting out people's organs. And he's like, hey, you want to do that? I'll pay you money to take my daughter's organs out and put what it in the, the wife. What the fuck page of LinkedIn is he on anyway? I just, I what 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 baffles me is like his crazy elaborate plan to save his wife is somehow or another more convenient than just finding another meth cook in Detroit. <laughs> I I don't I truly don't understand it. I'm confused by every element well, of this. Speaking of story. LinkedIn, I'm getting on LinkedIn right now and here. Meth cooks. There's like 50 names popping up just in our I, area. Yeah, so I know. Yeah. I know half of them. I went to school with half of them. Yeah, yeah. I think most of us did living in in this part of, <laughs> yeah, of, the, of, of the United part of the States. Yeah, sure. I, I, this is a, a weird aside about meth, but I, I went for government day, my senior year of high school mm -hmm. and for government day, they took us to the, uh, the county courthouse and they were like, Hey, check out all of the things that we do in the, uh, in the government. And if you're really interested, you could become one of these clerks too. And I was like, this is weird. I, <laughs> all right, local government day. And, uh, one of the the stops on the tour of the county courthouse was also to go to the county jail and so they bring us to the county jail which is at capacity and they're having us like stare at the inmates from 
from their cell doors. They're like, come look at this inmate. Come look at this guy. You got to see this guy. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And, uh, and I turned to the sheriff and I said, why are all of these people here? What did they do? And she looks at me and she goes, math. <laughs> and that, it, that was it. It was like, that's how I found out my county had like a huge meth problem. <laughs> That sounds like a worse experience than I had. My senior year, I was part of a health, like a pre-med kind of health kind of class where they taught you some basic like first aid and, and introduced you to the, the health communities and all this. And, and so for our big field trip, they took us down to um, Houston's medical district and they took us to the cardiac surgery place. And we got to stand in the over in like the skylight area of the theater and look down and watch them as they were giving open heart surgery to a patient. And then after that, they took us to lunch at Pizza Hut, which didn't really open heart surgery. Pizza open Hut. Hut. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is what happens to you if you don't eat right. Now let's go eat at Pizza Hut. <laughs> um, hey, guess what? I made see, I'm getting really into this songwriting stuff. So want to hear a song I made up? Yeah, I'm all ready. Right. All right. Ready? All right. Now, again, my singing voice isn't all there, so we'll just, but here it goes. Candyman, Candyman, he can do things only candy can. Candyman, Candyman, he'll melt in your mouth and not in your hands. Look out, it's the Candyman. And if you sing that in the mirror one time, you said his name five times, so now he'll appear to you. I'm dying over here. I'm dying because of that melt in your mouth and all the blowjob references. It was between that and and he, <laughs> what are you doing with that hook? No, <laughs> part of a rusty nail, but this is ridiculous. Candy man, um, oh boy! It was between that and that that older song, you know, um, who can take his hook and and stab you in the guts? Who can take a bunch of bees and sting you in the nuts? The candy man can. <laughs> So I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm torn between the two songs. I don't know which one I like better. <laughs> we can take his little can. Oh, man. I, that's, that's one so guess what ages. we're talking about next, folks? <laughs> Candyman. We're talking about Candyman. Oh, boy. There are no reflective services in this, in the studio, so. Oh, thank God. We can say, well, We can say his name as shit many as times as we want. Yeah. Directed by Nia DaCosta. Mm-hmm. Written by Jordan Peele, DaCosta, and Wynn Rosenfeld. Starring... Yah, Yah Abdul Mateen the two, Tiona Paris <laughs> the two, <laughs> the two, <laughs> um, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, Coleman Domingo, Virginia Madsen, and Tony and, Todd, and Virginia Madsen's voice because we all know what happened to Virginia Madsen in the first film. Um, this is a direct sequel to that first movie, skipping right. over the two sequels that came afterward in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, $25 million budget, $55.8 million uh, box office. I loved, absolutely loved Me too, man. this movie. They had a really good understanding of the themes that they wanted to discuss, yeah. and they executed them perfectly. They blended CGI special effects really well with practical effects. Yeah, the practical effects are, are spectacular. I love that you only catch Candyman in the reflection of the mirrors. Yes, it was so fun. Like, to see that like when the the one 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 victim gets it and you just get a cutaway shot of like her apartment and her like high rise mm-hmm. 
and you just see like her body lifting up and getting smashed against the window and and like it's crazy. You don't see the Candyman though. Yeah, which yeah, the, the same in the art gallery. Um, I think you had stepped out for that scene, but in the mm, art gallery, yeah. this this guy gets it like gruesomely, <laughs> and you only catch Candyman in the reflections around the room. You know, otherwise he's just being like slaughtered. And they don't rely on jump scares. No, it, it had very, very few jump, if any, jump scares. Really. I think that one scene where she finds the, the paintings that he's been painting, that Anthony's that's been painting, yeah. and he comes in behind her and, and yells at her. I think that's the one kind of really jump scare. But yeah. the rest of it's just creep factor. And I love that yeah, in the movie. It was really, really great. A lot of critics have been talking about how preachy it was, how didactic so much of the story was in a way. But I, I kind of want to push back against some of that idea that for some reason or another, art can't be didactic. I think there are times in which that can become really annoying or it can become really, I don't know, uninteresting. But I felt in this movie especially, the kind of didactic tone or, or the, the preachy tone uh, kind of worked. I don't know. It worked for me. I, I yeah. felt like I was really into it. And I felt like it clarified some of, of what it was trying to do, thematically speaking, so that we're of the same kind of accord as we encounter this new interpretation of the legend of Candyman. Yeah, if they dialed it back at all, um, I wouldn't have dialed the exposition back very much. But yeah. this idea that, that horror transcends generations and can keep coming yeah. back, and that each of the potential victims of Candyman see the Candyman that they are most familiar with in legend. Right. Right. With it all starting with Tony Todd, but then there were others as right. they come along. Um, it was, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. It's a really interesting take on, on this idea of um, like historic trauma, uh, black trauma. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was really interesting. I think it's also really interesting that the characters that encounter Candyman interpret Candyman differently according to their lived experiences. Right, right, right. So you look at like a lot of the white characters that encounter Candyman and get slaughtered by him, right, are kind of traditionally in these more aggressor type roles. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that like the um, bathroom full of high school girl bullies. Right, exactly. Whereas I think the marginalized characters in the story see Candyman as more of a tragic figure and sometimes even like a, a savior kind of figure. I mean, like a symbolic, a symbolic writer of wrongs. Stephen Graham Jones has, an, he said something interesting when he wrote uh, The Only Good Indians, where he was talking about mm -hmm. the slasher. And what's really interesting about the slasher is that it can reinforce this idea of a kind of perverse justice. Right. In which yeah. the slasher comes out and annihilates everybody bad. And the only ones who remain are those who are somehow or another like ideologically pure or mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, morally pure or, or something of that sort. And in so the they, 80s, this was always like the virgin and or like right. the nerd or it something takes on a, like a very literal metaphor. Yeah. And thankfully, Scream and all of its meta commentary deconstructed that whole idea for us. But now. In Candyman, we do have those virtuous characters um, surviving yeah. and not being affected. Um, and given what happens at the end, and again, I don't want to spoil it, but Tony Paris's character is virtual, is virtuous. Yeah, I, you know, it's not as she's a final girl. She's a final right. girl. But I can say 
imagining what happens after the credits roll to in this story, her life is fucked. Oh yeah, like absolutely. she might be a final girl, but her life is fucked. It's really, really interesting. I I feel like it is an interesting conversation starter. Uh, I had a really great time with Candyman. I did too. On the other hand, yeah, I did not enjoy the Nighthouse. Yeah, David Bruckner directed that one, written by Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski. Good job. Stars uh, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, stars Rebecca Hall, Sarah Goldberg, Evan Jonikite, Stacy Martin, Vondi Curtis Hall. Uh, really... Rebecca Hall, she's fine. She yeah. she does a, a good job. I felt like it was a fine performance from her. And I enjoy Vondi Curtis Hall and things I've seen him in before, and he did okay mm-hmm. in this. Yeah. Um, the, the performances were not bad at all. And and even some of the conceptual horror that they give us, the architectural horror, I think is interesting because the boogeyman in this story of, of Nighthouse, in, in which basically a woman feels as though she's being haunted by her, her dead husband, uh, it, it, conceptually, it's really interesting because the boogeyman only exists in the negative spaces of the house. Yeah, I love that effect. It's such an interesting idea. And I think that as a study of grief, it could work really, really well. Because when you think of a haunting, as we oftentimes talk about, when you think of a haunting, a haunting is really kind of the revisitation of some kind of either memory or some kind of, you know, vengeful spirit or or whatever, but it's a revisitation of these human elements left behind. And so in an architecture, in a house or something like that, where you lose a loved one and that loved one used to occupy the same lived space that you were in, the negative spaces becoming something menacing or threatening to your happiness, I think is really interesting. I think that makes for an interesting ghost. Yeah. I agree. Unfortunately, that is not what this movie does. It's not a movie that is about the haunting of being left behind. It should be, but it isn't. Whereas Candyman has a really great understanding of theme and how to use it and incorporate yeah. that into the story. I don't think the Nighthouse knows what theme is. As, as, as college educators, if somebody were to turn in a paper and, and of this... We would, our first question, I think, would be, What is your thesis statement? What are you doing? What are you trying to do? What do you want to say? They don't know what they want to say in this movie. Yeah, exactly. As a result, it just feels super weird and schizophrenic. The, the boogeyman is, is depression, I guess. I, but is it? I don't know. It's also super confusing because we find out that the husband has, has been living a double life. Which, again, could be very interesting in complicating our feelings about the memory of someone. You know, just recently this week, there was some uh, revelation about Bob Ross's life. And, like, Bob Ross uh, cheated on his wife. And people are now finding this out on social media. And they're like, oh, how dare you, Bob Ross? And, and, and so there's this kind of, like, feeling of a violation of the adoration they had for someone. So here we have Rebecca Hall's husband. And I wonder she, if Bob Ross used any of the of his famous lines from his his uh, show, like when he was with his mistress. I don't know. Like, we're going to have a happy was... little tree live here. I'm going to just take this brush and beat the devil out of it. Just beat it up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Bob Ross, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but good night and God bless. <laughs> good night, and God bless. Oh no, uh, no. So she she finds out that her husband has has like been spending his free time building a mirror house out in the woods across the lake from them, and then murdering women and storing them in the floorboards of this new not a house. And I'm I'm just so confused. I'm like, what is this supposed to be or mean? Or well, and he was doing it to save her from the, the from, boogeyman from depression, depression, like that I, was coming after her and wanted to kill her this entire time. It's so bizarre. I don't. I truly don't understand <sighs> what he's trying to do with this story. It doesn't work. It's trying to do too many things, and none of those things really contribute very clearly to the theme that he's trying to explore or themes they're trying to explore you can have multiple themes in, oh, a, sure, in a story yeah. um you know another one that didn't do really well for me um and i'm a huge fan of the marvel universe i grew up as a kid let me give you some backstory i grew up as a kid reading mainly marvel comics and some dc mm-hmm. but with dc i had you know we had the old movie of, of christopher reeve superman and then that series yeah. we had tim burton's batman so we had some great live action dc heroes already Marvel, we didn't. Marvel, we had a shitty-ass Captain America. We had a Fantastic Four that was buried and, you know, that they didn't even want to release. I've seen that movie. That's, I've heard it's awful. It's bad. The Captain America was bad enough, but like that 90s Captain America. Mr. Fantastic in that Fantastic Four movie has pool noodles for arms. Cool. Now I want to see it. It's wild, man. So I get into, into the 2000s and I get... We get Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. We get Blade. Yeah. We get um, uh, we get the X-Men, um, which was again not a great movie. Like Brian Singer really screwed up that that franchise, but he he at least took it seriously in that first movie, and it was it was decent. It was okay. The second one was really good. Um, I don't think they gave enough credit and enough time for like Cyclops as the leader. They focused too much on Wolverine. Who didn't even look like Wolverine in the comics, but the point is we were getting some good movies. And I could finally start to envision some solid superhero movies from Marvel. And then Marvel in 2008, they're not acquired by Disney yet. They are basically bankrupt. They take their last bit of money and they give it to the director you would least think would be connected to a, a Marvel movie and John Favreau. And they, they hire a strung out, drug addicted, straight out of rehab, Robert Downey Jr. And they're like, we're giving you a one-time character that was an alpha character, but now he's relegated to like the, the B-list. We're giving you Iron Man. And they fucking knocked it out of the park. That was insane. That saved them. And so we see Marvel and the MCU as this huge juggernaut now, but they didn't start out like that. They were on their last leg. So I'm really impressed with where they've yeah. come. And I have wanted... For 10 years, a good Black Widow movie. Oh, hands down. And she deserved to be the first female superhero really highlighted. Like, she should have had a movie before Wonder Woman in DC. Like, the DCEU's got its own crap going on. I mean, like, I kind of disagree, but because uh, Black Widow has never been a super important character in the Marvel mythos. It's only been recently that she's she's kind of been brought up as a quintessential Avenger. Well, true in the comic books, but I'm just thinking yeah. from the establishment within the movies, I oh, feel sure. like she should have had. An I early... mean, I'm, I'm super pissed. Oh, man, I, I will go off on wonder woman 
because <laughs> I hated those movies. I thought they missed the entire point of those characters. Oh, they absolutely did. But I absolutely I agree. I think Black Widow could have been the kind of trendsetter with regards to female-led superhero movies. Yeah. It should have been she should have had a movie way before now. Way before certainly they killed her character off. Yeah. In the most recent, you know, Infinity Saga. So they bring us this character, this movie. Spoiler alert, folks, she didn't get that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she, she gets this movie now that, that is very difficult to, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to give this character any real character growth after you've completed this character's arc? And I don't even think that arc was all that good, to be no. honest. I, I really, really struggled with how they treated Black Widow through this whole experience. Yep. And then we get a movie this summer, uh, her, her solo outing. And there were, there were two highlights for me of the movie. Yeah. David Harbour. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was so much fun to watch. And Florence Pugh. Yeah. Who plays uh, Yelena Belova, the new Black Widow. She was, she was a delight. And three for me because I was always a fan of the Mummy movie. Rachel Weisz. She was Rachel Weisz. I just don't know what she was doing in this. Movie. I don't know what she was doing in the movie, but I always like to see Rachel Weisz. Oh sure, I like, mean, yeah, we can watch her for days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so directed by Kate Shortland, written by the screenplay written by Eric Pearson, with story by Jack Schaefer and Ned Benson. Uh, also in it, Ot Fabinley, Olga Kurilenko, William Hurt, and Ray Winstone. Budgeted of uh, $200 million, grossed only 372 and I know that was contentious because I don't know if that counts like the Disney Plus money, and I think mm. Scarlett Johansson, at last I heard, she was She's suing, suing them yeah. over that because she didn't make as much because I guess her yeah. pay got cut being on Disney Plus. Right. It's such a disappointing movie it on really the whole. Is. I, I, this is the first Marvel movie that I really felt like I was so let down. The third act was so boring. Yeah. I've seen that movie. Like, I've seen that third act. It was Captain America and the Winter Soldier. It yeah. worked for me then, but it doesn't work now. There's, it just doesn't feel earned. The villain, I, what was he doing? Like, I, I can't to, even today explain to you what the whole purpose of the movie was. Or what the stakes were. It's, it was just so blah. It was like, here's generic bad guy number one. They took one of my favorite, like, villains, Taskmaster, and just... Did nothing with it. I mean, Taskmaster shows up for like two scenes, and and they're not even. I mean, one of them's kind of interesting, but then the others. I'm, and I felt like they ripped off another villain when they did Taskmaster. Like, isn't it basically just the Winter Soldier over again? I mean, kind of. Yeah, kinda, yeah. The brainwashing thing yeah. became the the whole motif. It, it was like they tried to have Captain America: The Winter Soldier Part Two, but it just doesn't work. So one of the things that didn't work for me craft wise was just this uneven editing it reminded me of and i don't want people to think i'm going to be slamming marvel tv shows because on the whole i've enjoyed the marvel tv shows i've enjoyed uh wandavision it had problems but i still enjoyed it i had some problems with why i enjoyed it um falcon and the winter soldier i loved loki loki's my favorite so far absolutely falcon and the winter soldier had the same kind of editing problems and as much yeah. as i want to love those characters and that story it just had too many holes. And they had the same kind of editing problems here in Black Widow, yeah. where it was just too choppy, too cut up. Um, I didn't enjoy the, like, I don't know if Courtney Love would just not sell the rights to Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. 
but this hackneyed pop culture female singing like a real slow version of Smells Like Teen Spirit just sucked ass. That was the it weirdest took the teeth out of the fucking song. The weirdest song choice I've seen in a movie. And, and I mean, Marvel <laughs> movies have a very liberal use of licensed they soundtracks. They could have given Courtney Love some money to to purchase the rights to play yeah, that movie. I just song. don't understand what they were doing with that rendition. It it didn't work thematically at all. It's it took me out of the movie. You know what would have been a better song if they were going to use a Nirvana song? They and they've been using it on that new Batman trailer. Um Nirvana's something in the way as the opening to that mm -hmm. that Black Widow movie would have been pitch and it's slow and it's haunting mm -hmm. and that would have been a terrific song. Yeah. Um so I haven't seen Shang-Chi yet, but in comparison to Black Widow, I already feel like this is a much oh, better dude, movie. It's so much better. And, and I mean, it's not without its faults. Uh, there, there are certainly some pieces, I think, of Shang-Chi where they're trying very deliberately to tie Shang-Chi into the greater Marvel universe. And some of that has to be done because, you know, like they're trying to set up stories. So I, I'm giving them a lot of patience in being like, I want to see what story you're coming up with next. So tie this into your larger universe. I'm cool with that. It, it just felt like those moments, the, the bits where they're very deliberately trying to tie Shang-Chi into everything else felt out of place. And it felt like it slowed down the momentum of the movie for me. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, outside of those elements, this was hands down my favorite like blockbuster experience of the summer. Cool. It was, I can't wait to see this. It was so much fun. Um, I will admit, I'm not a huge fan of Aquafina and that persona she I takes love her. on. I love her, though. Like, like, I think she's so fun. She's so much fun. Um, there's just, I don't know. There's so much in here. Tony, Tony Leung, I, I don't know how to say his last name. Mm -hmm. um, Is he the Mandarin? He, he's the Mandarin. Um, he I've seen him in stuff before. Crushes it. Like, crushes it. His his performance of that character gives so much depth to what is ultimately just kind of a one-off villain, right? Um, but there, he portrays him with just such human depth. But how many Marvel movies have we seen where we've had that one-off villain and they're just two-dimensional or even just one-dimensional? I mean, very often. Yeah. I'm still upset about Malekith. Like, yeah. I'm still upset about that. And, and oh, I yeah, think for the dark world. I forgot about that movie. As everyone most should have. forget about that movie. <laughs> it's, it's like the worst of the Marvel movies for sure. Yeah, we have a lot of, of villains that I think these one-off villains are very underwhelming because you can't really give them a whole lot of a character arc. You can't really give them a whole lot of depth. I think that is not the case in Shang-Chi. Cool. I think that he has an immense amount of depth and it plays into a lot of the story's themes. Again, I, this Shang-Chi is, is a lot about family drama and conflict and, and generational inheritance. It's about, you know, kind of these first-generation immigrants, you know, living with their kids who don't really quite know how to make sense of their cultural identity. And the conflicts that arise from that, wanting to be one thing, but also being another thing, and having to take those two separate identities and kind of marry them together. It's a really interesting movie from a character perspective. So 
yeah uh great i loved it so don't spoil it for me but does he have a happy ending i'm not gonna spoil it black widow didn't have a happy ending (laughs) and scarlett johansson if anybody deserves a happy ending i i i resent this bit the most about the movie with an asian cast Oh, well, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't even trying to go there. Honestly, that was not my intention at all. Although there was like (laughs) within the past five years, there was like a a massage parlor here in Northwest Arkansas that was unfortunately Asian that was shut down because of happy endings. I really did not mean to go there. I'm sorry. That's not my (laughs) I was just going for the general blowjob reference here, folks. That's it. That's it. Nobody will ever listen to us again. (laughs) Well, now that I've successfully alienated people, um, I do want to talk a little bit about some things we've seen individually that kind of stood out to us. Listen, um, my movie of the summer. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Space Jam 2. Ugh. Space Jam 2 is... Stood out in a good way or a bad way? A cinematic masterpiece in terrible cinema. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's up there. It's if you can just like get slobbering drunk and watch this movie, I think that's the best way. It's soulless. It's just so immensely corporate. I, it's so bad. And the original Space Jam was no masterclass in filmmaking either. I mean, for those of you kids out there who are like, ah, oh, yeah, Space Jam was the best. Go watch that movie. I think it's on Hulu. It's yeah, probably. It's somewhere <laughs> HBO Max, maybe. Could be on HBO. Go Max. watch. Go watch ni- the nineteen ninety six Space Jam, and reflect on how absolutely shitty your taste in movies was when you were a child. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but Space Jam Two, man. So, was there a movie or TV show that jumped out at you that you really liked? I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about them, okay, the, well, the ones cool. that I really, really liked. So I've been doing date night with my wife and date night, the PG version of what I'll tell you about date night and includes us watching TV shows on Saturday night. So we binged a few shows and right now I'm mentioning this one first because I feel like maybe not a lot of people are aware of it. Go watch this show. It is hilarious. It's called only murders in the building and it's on Hulu. And it stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. And they live in this really rich building. Steve Martin is an ex-actor. Martin Short is a failed director of, like, theater whose wife has left him. I mean, you've already got my attention with Steve Martin and Martin Short. And Selena Gomez is this weird, like, she, we don't really know who she is yet a few episodes in, except that she's there renovating her aunt's apartment. And all three of them are hooked on this true crime podcast that's uh, hosted by Tina Fey. And there's a murder in their building. And they decide to revive their careers and because they're all bonded by this podcast to make their own podcast. And so they're trying to go around their building, find out who the murderer is. They've talked to Nathan Lane. They've talked to Sting, the musician who Martin Short believes poisons his dog at one point (laughs) because Sting's like, I hate dogs. Get him off me. Get him off my leg. And and Martin Short's like, do you have a dog? And he's like, I hate it. I have a dog. Yes. I hate him too. (laughs) So 
This show is really great. It's only about 30 minutes long, the episodes. They are so fun. They do great character work for each of them. It's a great mystery. It's, again, something I could see Slayhouse publishing in in book form or story form. I also really, really like, I want to mention this, this next show really quickly, Evil which started out as a CBS drama. So it's on CBS. You're going to think, oh, well, that's crap, right? It's like terrible. But they moved it to Paramount Plus, and it stars Katya Herbers, who is a psychologist, Mike Coulter from um, the, the Netflix Marvel shows. He played the, the guy with the tough skin or whatever. Um, I don't remember the character's name. Um, and Asif Mandiv. And they work for the Catholic Church, and they're trying to prov- provide uh, proof of, like, supernatural events. So it kind of it straddles this line, right? But they've been, because they moved to Paramount Plus, they've opened themselves up as far as what they can and can't do. It's funny. It's wonderful when they're in this monastery where everyone's mandated to be quiet in one scene in one episode in season two. And Mike Coulter's character, the priest, goes in to pray with these monks who are all having to be quiet. And so he's trying, and they have to do everything by like, you know, words on the screen because he can't talk. And so he's like, okay, you're just going to open your mind up. And this is set across the screen. Okay. You're just going to, you're going to talk to God. Fuck. <laughs> Kristen Naked. And that's the Katya Herbert's character. He's got a kind of a, he's crushing on her a little bit. And she's kind of crushing on him. And then he's like, he like envisions like their bodies entwined, like, you know, just segments of it. And then he's like, Fuck, 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 just all across. And I'm just like busting up laughing. I think that's hilarious. Um, there, I do. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say there, there is a movie that I actually, I forgot that I had seen it. Yeah. yeah. It's actually ahead. really good. Uh, just Stillwater. Um, okay. Directed by Tom McCarthy. It's got Matt Damon, Camille Cotton, Abigail Breslin. It's about a guy. He's an Oklahoma oil rigger who goes to France to try to exonerate his daughter who uh, was put in a French jail after she allegedly murdered her roommate. Cool. It is, um, is a drama. It's very powerfully acted. Camille Cotton is wonderful. Matt Damon crushes it. I mean, it, like, watch Matt Damon in this movie as an Oklahoma oil rigger and you realize... You you know that person, like you you interact with those people all the I'm sure time. Sure, I've passed him in the gas station at Casey's. Yeah, exactly. Breakfast sandwich from their their pizza place. Why are you getting a breakfast sandwich from Casey's? Because it's quicker than going through McDonald's. Oh man, I'm so sorry. That might be why my voice sounds like this. It might be too many breakfast sandwiches from Casey's. They might have like scarred my my throat. I'm so sorry. Um. I also want to quickly mention The Outsider in Lovecraft Country on HBO Plus or HBO Max. I can vouch for uh, Lovecraft Country. They were really Jonathan Majors, uh, Journey Smollett, Courtney B. Vance, Michael Kenneth Majors from um, Lovecraft Country. Michael Kenneth Majors just passed away. Beautifully, mm. beautiful, much better than the book. I thought much better than the book. Yeah. They took the the idea, the skeleton of the book, and really fleshed it out. Um, the Outsider, based on a Stephen King novel, really, really good. Um, uh, again, both of those are really good. They're great genre pieces, and they're they're really engaging. Lots of fun stuff. <clears throat> hey, what's going on with Slayhouse this month? So we are open for submissions for our short story anthology, Tales of Slayhouse 2021. 
We are accepting stories in the science fiction, fantasy, horror, mystery, thriller kind of vein. So if you've got something that fits that, go ahead and submit to us. You can find our submission guidelines on our website, slayhouse.com forward slash submissions page. Or you know what? Just go to slayhouse.com and check out all of our website. Yeah. Um, we have a current title out, A Mindful of Scorpions by J.R. Billingsley. Speaking of media and media consum- consumption, if you're mm-hmm. into a reading experience that is like watching a television show, I really recommend A Mindful of Scorpions. It's a lot of fun to read. We've got one professional book reviewer who has already released her review on Goodreads. This is a 300 plus page novel. She read it in a day. Yeah. She was hooked on it. She was just wanted to binge it. I know when I read it, I binge mm-hmm. read it as well. Yep. Um, we are also follow us on Twitter uh, at House Slay. We're on Reddit, a Slay House. We're on Instagram, a Slay House, and on TikTok, a Slay House. Uh, we also have a Buy Me a Coffee and a Patreon. So don't forget to support us if you can. We're um, sharing proceeds from the Patreon with our studio, Wayne Howard Studio. They are very gracious to let us use the studio to shoot the podcast. These guys are wonderful, very professional, and we're having a wonderful experience with them. And um, I think in another week or two, we might have uh, another couple episodes coming out. I think I know we told people at one point we were going to do a real hellraiser of an episode. I guess we lied to them. <laughs> that is coming, but maybe not just yet. We need a little more time with that one. Guys, I need to read books. I'm sorry. My reading has been terrible. I work so much. Me too. Me too. Um, so I think maybe coming up, we're going to have short stories by Edith Wharton and Horatio Quiroga. Horatio Quiroga. That's how you really pronounce it, folks, if you're not a stupid white redneck like me. <laughs> um, Horatio Quiroga. Horatio Quiroga. <laughs> is that some kind of superfood? It is. It's like... <laughs> It's right up there with quinoa. Quinoa. And <laughs> quesadilla. And Cali. And, <laughs> and, and the other good stuff you're supposed to eat. All right. Um, so that is Slayhouse Publishing. That's our movie review for the summer. Check some of these out. We'd love to hear what you guys think. So follow us on social media and give us your feedback. And we'll be back soon with a couple of new episodes. See you on the dark side. Mm-hmm.